Hey Future Fit Tribe, great exciting news. DJ such an incredible success with the Carmen Murray Show. I have joined forces with a formidable force of nature, John Plismus, to start another podcast called The In With The Two Outsiders. As underdogs, we realize that there are many other underdogs out there and we interview misfits, rebels, professional troublemakers, activists, and uncover their underdog story and look from the outside in. But here's the catch. We believe that everybody has got an inner outsider. If you are an underdog, if you are a rebel, if you are a troublemaker, if you want to expand your mind or want to be awakened, then this is the podcast for you. It is all about us as outsiders participating, challenging each other and respectfully disagreeing and expanding our minds. Now, listen to this episode. Do tell us what you think and click on the show notes below in order for you to join the movement of the outsiders. John and Carmen walk into a bar called Life. There are six non-gender specific people at the counter. The first one says, what brought you here? Uh, we're curious. The second one says, where did you come from? Outside. Who is out there? E- everyone, bro. We're all outsiders in one way or another. When did you decide to leave there and come here? This moment, because that's all that matters. How do outsiders get in? Uh, oh, well, that's easy. You just ask your friend. Ask, ask why. TLDR. If you can't listen to the whole podcast, here it goes in about 60 seconds. There's this rabbi and he commits an atrocity or an act of passion we'll never know. It's in 1940s Johannesburg in a suburb. What happens then is a curious family tree grows with a zero-based history. And an apple grows from that tree. He falls from the tree and he has a deep sense of loss at his core, kind of a hollowness. The apple rolls away to become a most accomplished South African in the tech space. So we have this crazy open interview with this guy and he talks about the stuff he never really talks about. He draws a beautifully clear line from a hominid, that's a Latin word for a big monkey, in a cave all the way through history to a young man doing cocaine in a toilet. I know, it doesn't make any sense, but it will. What happens then is he illustrates how the muddy handprint in a cave echoes in eternity all the way down to that young boy in the toilet and how his chances of being president are ruined by a memory captured digitally. So that's the ape that invented perfect memory, now fighting for the right to enforce the right to forget. Finally, he understands that community, attribution and legacy. Those are the only three things that we need to worry about. He also talks about how millennials have reframed value. Whatever you think is valuable is wrong. You don't have to own anything, you just need access to it. That's what's actually important. He then tells us that family is the ultimate social teacher, courting cheesiness, but somehow getting away with the fact that his family teach him stuff all the time. So that's quite good. Stafford Massey is a curious analytical synthesizer fueled by a perceived cultural constraint and we think a superb example of an outsider who has used negative drivers to realize massive value. I dare you, don't listen to this. Woohoohoo! Hey, 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 how's John? How are you? I'm fine. Oh, please, can you stop being so grumpy? Like, Sorry. it really is exhausting me. I don't feel it's necessary to raise unnecessary enthusiasm. I've got to check things out first. Okay. And I'm on a plane and it takes off. I'm not excited till we land again. I'm not like, whoa, we're in the sky. 
The potential for death has gone up. You know, up. you need to sometimes just look at the clouds and have a little bit of imagination. You can't just be so serious all the time. But like statistically, you're more likely to die in a plane crash <laughs> when you're in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think. I have to check, but I think that stat's correct. You're anyway. Ma- am I going to slip my wrist now? No, no, please don't. It's so much paperwork. It's so much paperwork. <laughs> if, you, if you do that in a studio, I mean, you, you have no idea. Well... As outsiders, the in with the two outsiders, we decided to bring somebody in that is a trailblazer. Without further ado, Stafford Macy. Oh, it's awesome to be here. I love the stat. I love that. If you're in the sky, then that statistic just contextually becomes a whole different it's thing. It's a whole new thing, right? I never thought about it that way. Yeah, so ex- you're more likely to be killed by a great white than land. That, that doesn't matter. <laughs> if yeah, you're yeah. in the sea. Then your and stats are bigger. And, yeah, and you're, there's great white. Yeah, the stat. Yeah, then it's a stat. I'm glad you like that because I, I, I don't know why I try to explain this to people. Like they say, yeah. you have more chance of dying in a car crash than in a plane, yeah. Right? right? Yeah, but okay, but if you're in the plane, <laughs> plane. you are not dying of a yeah. car crash. Yeah, yeah. Then I think the context, 100%. profound, profound. Oh my God, we're Never so thought of you as a statistician. No, I'm just a frequent flyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steph, uh, yeah. tell us, who are you? Whenever someone asks me that question, I always think about my family. I think about my daughters. I think about my wife. I think that's probably the most important position that I am responsible for and the folks that I live for. It's my kids. It's, it's, uh, it's what feeds me. It's at the end of the day when everything goes wrong and, or anything goes right. It's where I go to celebrate. It's where I go. It's, my, it's my, my city of refuge. It's the place of domicile. I can go there and they just, they, it's, it's unconditional. I guess they don't have a choice but to love me because I'm their dad. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and maybe that, that's that's but, but I think I always think when someone says who are you, I think I identify myself within the capacity as a father and as a husband first before anything else. I don't think about my career. I don't think about you know hobbies. I don't think about those other things. I think those things are at the end of the day when you're laying back on that pillow. Those are the people that surround your bed. And that's more important to me than anything else. Uh, when you say lie on the pillow and they're surrounding you, I mean, that's normally quite a bad day. That's a, that, is a, that, yeah, that, is, that is not in the plane. That's not in the plane. Yeah, that's yeah, in no. the bedroom. <laughs> and, and it's, even, it's even worse. Unless you've been airlifted. Right, unless you've been airlifted. Wow, so that's interesting. So you contextualize yourself based on, I suppose, how you see your sort of foundational purpose. Yeah, and I think it's something that's probably dawned on me in the last decade. I don't think if, if you had to ask me that question 10 or more years ago, I think I'd have identified myself in my professional career or someone in there. But if you had to really extrapolate on it, I think as a, as a colored male in South Africa, it's a weird place to be. We, the minority of the minority, you know, our family trees are very simple. My family tree was a, a horny rabbi in Parktown North Shack, the mate. <laughs> That's my family tree. Right. right there. I don't, I don't have like histories of, of people and, and, and that depth to, to my existence. Uh, it's something traumatic event. And, and most couple people have that in their background. It was a traumatic event. It was an illegal thing. And that's the resultant of why they exist, generally speaking, if you speak about so, so when it comes to cultures, I and mean, when you travel to Italy and you find these families that have done things and you find these lineages and you find, as, as a colored person, there's not a lot of depth around you. So you kind of draw from disparate cultures to formulate your identity. And I think it's something that's not spoken of more. And I've, quite a few of my friends have actually said, maybe the book that I should write is a book about that. So, you know, there's so few successful 
colored people in the technological, you can keep going, right? And the more and more you define it, you almost find like I'm probably the only person that comes from that demographic that's done what I've done. And, and then why? And then you start peeling that onion. And yeah, so, so if, if you had to take me further back and further contextualize and you say, who are you? I guess I am one of those colored people that really, do we have a culture? Do we have an identity? I think we as a people are struggling with that. I think we, we just, our history is so flat, it's so short. And I think it does feed into our identity in a broader perspective. I'm so glad you just said that because this feeds directly into what we want to, I mean, I think what we could talk about because yeah. I hear you and, and, and I do a lot of talking to companies. And one of the things that is interesting, and I'm sure you know, is legacy systems, the weight right. of legacy yes. systems. So number one, perhaps from a genetic point of view, you would possibly be an outsider. Yes. But also a fresh start. Yeah, you could look at it that way. But I do think there's value in history. There's, okay. there's value in, in, even on a genetic level. Yep. You know, who you are and what you are is not necessarily only what you think you are. It's, it's, there's so many influences associated with that. So, uh, you know, just cultural history. I, I've, when I look at Italians and I look at the French mm. and I look at their history and you go to the Middle East and you find Arabian history, then you go to Israel and you find Israel history. And it's just being a person that, can identify with that depth and that width and that breadth, being a Viking and coming from right. Norway or coming from Denmark. Or, there's something to that, you know, versus the horny Jewish rabbi. Right, like you can actually domain. see the origin <laughs> nearby. Yeah. yeah, and it's usually, it was a, usually a traumatic event. So, and, and if you take a look at my great-grandmother, Esther was her name. Mm -hmm. and, but the, we don't know the details associated because she never really spoke about it because it was a quite a, either it was a traumatic event or it was an event that she was just ashamed to speak about and she didn't speak english very well and uh or she and she just didn't communicate much you know she was this old lady when i grew up in my grandmother's home and she never she was a very strict old black woman and she would just sit there and we knew that this had happened but we didn't know all the details associated with it and that was it that's my family tree that's where and the trauma now i think that feeds into a lot of what i've done in my life further on I do think there's a benefit to it because you try and kind of make a home for yourself. You try and create your own culture, your own identity, and you, 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 you know, legacy. You're yeah. always thinking of that. But I do think legacy is an underpinning of any you. It's, it's instinctive in us. Every human being never wants to be forgotten. So I would ask, you spoke of your family and, yeah. and you know, like um, super fondly and your kids. Is the onus stronger on you to be the author of the legacy? Yeah, that's how I feel. That's, that's how I almost feel Good like point. this is the branch that yeah. I need to nurture. And this branch becomes, you know, the, not the branch. This is actually where the, the thing comes out the ground. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. And then from here, this is the tree. This is actually the base of it. Yeah. And we move on from here. Why is having a sense of belonging so important to you? I think a sense of belonging is important to everyone. I, I, oh, you know what I've done, and I, John's heard me speak before. Mm. I, I like to take my technological talks and make them more human. And because technology, as, as in, in a weird paradoxical way, actually made me focus more on what humanity is about. Because, you know, technology as it pervades us and it makes us do things, the big question is, is it because of technology or is that just because of what we really, really are? Is it unleashing attributes of what we truly are? When, when men knew how to take a pencil or something and to put their thoughts on paper, they used a technology called a pen and they used this thing called a book and they wrote in it and they put their thoughts onto an atom-based platform. And the, the notion of being able to take those thoughts away that's not yours and consume it no matter where the person was that wrote that that made us more contemplative that kind of accentuated who we were in a, in a weird way and i think technology is just it accelerates this you know social media 
is not just this thing called Facebook or Instagram. I think social media, we, when you step on, you look at it from a humanities perspective. It's, you know, we know different from the person that walked into the cave and put clay in their mouth and put their handprint there and spat. Why? Why did that person? I think the difference just now, the wall is just digital and it's really big and it's global, but it's the same instinctive need that we have. And that need is, I think, three things. I think everyone wants to be uh, yeah, never forgotten. That's legacy. We don't ever want to. Every morning when you wake up, I think three things drive you instinctively. Number one is you want to feel a part of something. That's community. You just want to feel a part of something. Number two is what drives you is recognition, attribution. You want to be recognized. You want to be, you know, you want attribution. And the third thing is is legacy. And, and, and that's the substrate to love. And, and that's a weird thing. So social media is actually an acceleration of, because of tool sets that we now have that allow us to express our humanity on digital walls. So we create these deep, rich information shadows and we keep casting it into the ether. And we are no different from the cave person. We, that's still who we are. We, we don't want to be forgotten. When we go on the ground, we want a legacy. We want community. We want, to, we want people to say, hey, you did well. We want to feel like, and that's what social media actually is. And, it's, and that's why it's so big, because it's not social media. It's humanity finally having tool sets that allow themselves to express that humanity. And I think those are the substrates. And I think because of technological disbursement and transversality and everyone having it, we now find that we're dealing with ourselves. We actually have created this reflective mirror of who we are. And, and it sometimes scares us. And it, it sometimes is as it's, it's, there's definitely good in it, but the yin and the yang is quite interesting yeah. to observe. And, and going back, 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 it starts making you look at who you are, like who we are and what we are and what's our future. And, and, and that's, I think that's a big drive. And the millennials that are now growing up, notice they're the folks that are tangibly, organically growing up with these new digital tools. And it's quite interesting how hard it is to employ them and retain them. <laughs> it's really, sure. really difficult. But you know why? Because they want to be involved in things that have meaning and impact. Mm. Millennials are driven by meaning and impact. They don't care for, for monetary wealth. They don't care to own things, right? They care to access things. We've heard this. My kid's 19, Bethany. She hasn't come to me and said, Dad, I want a car. She says, Dad, I want the Uber app with your card. Ah, <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't want the car. Why? Like why? Yeah. It's insurance. It's parking. It's insurance mobility. Yeah. Like, I, I just want to get from point A to B. There's no value in that. See, so the, what we think of as value, like um, accommodation to them, as a thing. We think of it as a home. They think of it as a, as a utility. You access Service, it. Yeah. And you, you gain access to it. And and for them, it's about impact. I, you know, at at WeWork where we are now, we put the coffee barristers down, and. What's interesting is the millennials don't care that the coffee is free. They care that the partnership that we have with I Love Coffee, which employs deaf, young, black females as barristers, is what they care more about. That's why they love the free coffee. So, And a millennial is so different. When they walk into the building, you and I will go in there because we're not millennials and we look and we like, how do we order coffee? And then we have to circle the, the latte, the, the, the hot milk, and, and then we show it to them. The millennial walks in and looks at this person and says, what do you, and then tries to figure it out. And then in a week later, converses and orders coffee that way. And the next week, converses with the barrister. And the third week, in their team, when they're getting together, they've organized a silent lunch where everyone speaks sign language. That's oh, what I millennials that. do. They, they, yeah. they think and operate in a, in a way that's very inspiring. And we laugh and scoff at them and we don't, we don't think they're as, as serious as we are because they don't find material wealth as, as, as foundational as we do, like a house and a car and securities. They don't care about that stuff. 
And I don't know how the world looks 50 years from now because of them or 80 years from now, but it is quite inspirational to observe them. And I think it's the technological tools that's making us different. It really, really, really is. And, and that's just interesting to observe, yeah. Going back to your history, I, it's almost like you're the perfect person to navigate that bridge between where we are and, and where, let's say, Bethany is or right. even younger people because you were robbed of that mm. legacy. And so in your attempt to try and rebuild it for your children or your family, right. you've had to really reflect on what it means. And, and what strikes me about watching your talks is you, you are one of the only, I think probably the only speaker I've seen in South Africa who refuses to stick to the technology because that's easy. I mean, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's what everyone else does. does yeah. You always bring it to the, to the human. And I know you talk about when things vanish into the walls, they become yeah. truly useful. Yeah. Just for people who don't know, Stafford talks very eloquently about how electricity was a, an idea. Uh, it was like a concept until it vanished into the walls and it made things work. It became really useful. Yeah. It's exactly what you're saying about, you know, millennials. The house has vanished into the kind of yep. ether. I just need to book it and I need to know where to go and then stay there and then leave when I'm done. And there's an agility ab about that, which a lot of older people don't understand. Don't understand. But, you know, the big impacts are, you know, we, we always talk about ownership to access. That's, we keep talking about that. Like right. people don't want to own things anymore. They want to access things. They want to own Airbnb as an access model. Yep. Uber is an access model. Yep. Spotify is an access model. And when you have an access model, it's a... It's a more sustainable business model. But, but what we see actually spawning is this notion of information displacing materials. Right? So right. it's like the self-driving right. car. It's, uh, if you have you know, this coagulation of disparate cognitions into a vehicle and the vehicle is autonomous and it can move, yep. then if a vehicle will never bump algorithmically into another vehicle, so it's mathematically yes. impossible, then we start looking at the form function and the form factor and the ergonomics of a vehicle and we start realizing that 70% of a vehicle's weight is regarding safety regulations. It's crumple zones, it's, it's airbags and that. So right. if, you, if the information starts being aggregated into the object, then suddenly you don't require all of that and then the vehicle takes on a different form. So a car that yep. we see today and that the thing that moves us from point A to B will be a very different looking thing, ergonomically speaking, right. because it will be filled with information. Yeah. And when mm. things get filled with information, they displace physical objects now. And there's a book that's just come out talking about the dematerialization of economies. Where, where we see in the United States for the first time, we are seeing an economy that's advanced enough from a technological tool adoption perspective where the impact is actually less on the environment. We're actually using less physical stuff. Yeah. And our productivity levels are actually accelerating independent of that. And that dematerialization aspect is exactly that. When information displaces atoms, then it's quite interesting what, sure. what occurs. And, and that's the world in which we live in right now. So you can take a look at things. You know, the, the, what we always tend to do with numbers and statistics is look at them in like um, time, linear time shelves or like tracks. Like silos almost. Mm. But we actually need to take a look at them over epochs and, and take a look at you know, what the net effect is. You know, the Industrial Revolution... And the amount of emissions that occurred during the Industrial Revolution was much more than it is today. Much more. We had a far deeper, harder impact on the world. You know, technology has allowed us to build cities. And, you know, there's a few technologies that caused urbanization to occur. And, and then we created this thing called flat iron. And it was a flat iron structure. And it was a 
This was a set of technologies that allowed us to rise up into the sky. And then we could only go for flights up because people could only walk. And then this thing came along the elevator, which is the most undervalued innovation in the history of humanity. <laughs> it's the elevator. We don't speak about it, but the guy that invented it, if you go read up on it, it's quite fascinating. How he had to prove that it wouldn't fall, et cetera, et cetera. But that innovation, that piece of technology allowed us to go higher and higher and higher. Now we're densifying in cities and urbanizing at a rate that's we've, it's quite profound. Like more than 70% of humanity in the next decade will live inside of cities and not outside of cities. But if we do that, now impact in the environment goes down. Mm. It's, we create shared services models. We get great shared transportation models. Look at New York City when you spend a week in New York. You don't have your own car. You get from point A to B. Take a look at how the economy works. Just, just notice the shared that you don't own a bike in New York. It's silly to own a bike. You get bicycle share. You know, and all the apps and services that go with that. So I think as technology advances in aggregate, not that there are places where there are emission problems and, you know, low emission radiation. And those are challenges, sure. But in aggregate, technology does allow human beings to have less of an impact on, this, on, on its environment. It really, really does. And inevitably, it will allow us to be in, interplanetary and then even less so. That's quite interesting. If you read about the kind of economies they're working on for this Mars thing, just if they develop those technologies and use them on Earth and we never go to Mars, that would be really yeah. kind of useful. And um, to re, it's like a um, beyond budget approach, you know, like a blank start again. So, so that's quite cool. I guess the question I want to ask is that, because I'm going to go back to this outsider thing, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by how a lot of these solutions for being more human are not from people in the group i feel like humans lose their humanity when we kind of we aggregate to the middle yes you know we vote for trump we do mad things and um, mobs but it's often the outsider who has a view of the group and then designs a hyperhuman. yeah totally you know the application of technology needs the application to humanity in order right. to really be useful. It's very interesting, like all the technological tools that are built in the world today, if you take a look at the people that are actually building those technological tools, they are not in the crowd. They are antisocial. They don't make eye contact. They hate sunlight. Absolutely. They code for 72 <laughs> hours at a time. Absolutely. You know, they drink liters and liters of, of soda pop or whatever it may yes. be. Yeah. So, so those are the type of people actually building the tools. And I love, there's a TED Talk that talks about the celebration of the introvert. At school, we teach our kids to work in teams and to be sure. part of projects and yeah. to bring people into teams. But Team player. Team yeah. player, and like you get rewarded for that. But you know what? The melancholy introvert that sits in the corner and really contemplates, are you, those are usually the people that have the biggest impact on society and humanity and moving us ahead. Yeah. It's never the crowd. Yeah. The crowd mm -hmm. actually never does. The, the crowd consumes services and sure, that, that is a necessary element. But the people that move us forward, yeah. the Einsteins of the world, the Steve Jobses of the world, keep going. You'll find that they are uh, individuals that are not really social animals. You yeah. know, they're actually antisocial animals. They stand on the outside of the periphery. They don't stand within the guardrails. And But I, I do think if you stand outside the guardrails, then suddenly you get this, you know, you're outside. The reason a fighter in the ring needs to go to the corner it's because he has the group of people on the outside to look right. in and say, hey, right. he goes back thinking, hey, you won that round. And they're saying, dude, you're being beaten up. Yeah, you're losing. You know, like yeah. lift up here and lift up there. And I think personally bringing him back to myself, yeah, yeah I, I definitely find myself on the outskirts yeah. looking in. And the inventions that I have built were usually things in my individual capacity. It wasn't something that we all got together and we said, hey, hey we're going to go do it. It's something that I felt inertly that I needed to do. Yeah. And it was very personal and very authentic to me. And that's why. How do you feel about getting a little older 
So what I want to, because I love your analogy of the boxer. See, as a youth, you kind of go straight in, right? You go in and you start boxing. I've found as I get older, I kind of spend more time, you know, back on the outside, let's call it with my team, possibly aspects of yourself that are still out there and, and require approval less. How have you found that that's changed for you as you as you get older? You know what I've before when I that some of the companies that I've built and uh, I, I just I did them and being youthful and naive was good, right? Because if I was contemplative and had the experience that I have now, I'd never have done them. Right. So there's a benefit to that youthful yeah, yeah, kind exactly. of burst of naive energy, uh, right? Yeah. So I mean, just sometimes just kicking the can down and just feeling as you go and figuring it out as you go is a, is a nice thing. But now that I'm 45, I, I, I think things through a lot more now. And you know, one of the things I start realizing is great ideas and great products and services, they're usually great because of the people behind them. You know, it's not about building great things. It's about building great teams. You know, the coagulation of incredible minds is actually the stuff that moves us forward. So the, the best things that I ever did in my career wasn't because of me. It was because of the people that I managed to coalesce around whatever I was trying to do. Yeah. And those people weren't the crowd either. They were usually a bunch of experts in the individual capacity. And as I've grown older, I've realized one of the greatest skills that you can have is, you know, one journalist asked me, what are you good at? And I said, you know what I'm really, really good at? Is knowing what I'm really, really shit at. Right, right. <laughs> that's yeah. a good skill. Like that's, that's probably the, the, my sole skill and, and the sole reason that I have been able to have some success in my, in, in my, in my, in my lifetime. And, because I know that this is where I'm weak. This is where the gaps are. And then you go get people that are better than you in those areas. And you're not driven by ego at that point in time. You're driven by something else. And also, I mean, I think what's very, very important from, you know, being an entrepreneur in, in South Africa and Africa, I always say this. It's, it's horrible being here. Right? It's really, really, <laughs> really, really hard. But that's why you stay. Because it's hard. You know, and I always say there's two types of entrepreneurs. I think the crowd... Of entrepreneurs like getting back to this notion of the outsider yeah i think the inside entrepreneur is an entrepreneur driven by innovation you know they're driven by things that exist you know if you build a digital agency or you build a mobile app development company as an entrepreneur that's that's very honorable go and do that but those things are normally driven not by invention the, the, mm. the phone exists the the network exists the app stores exist you're utilizing external tools and you're building products and services and you're building a business now is that true true entrepreneurship i, I don't know i think right. that's innovative entrepreneurship that's inside then you're an insider you're part of the crowd but the outsider entrepreneur is what i call the inventive entrepreneur this is the person that's not driven by monetary gain it's uh, he's, he or she is building something that hasn't existed in the first place. There is no Gartner magic quadrant. There is no referenceability. There is no case study. Everyone thinks he's mad. Even VCs look at him and go, are you nuts? It's impossible. Even sometimes his own engineers will go, the physics of what you're trying to build is not going to work. Yes. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're driven and you're driven and you push and you'll come back, you'll change your engineers and you come back until you find. And that's how I built that company over six and a half, seven years and took a global. Right, so that was a great success. But origin of that success was an inventive path, not an innovative path. Mm. And that's very, very different. And, and, and when you're an inventive entrepreneur, you're an outsider. You, you're outside the guardrails. You're alone because everyone is doubting you. People laugh at you. The first version of the payment payable, people very close to me saw it online and I see their comments on some of the articles going, this looks like 1970s technology. Stuff like that was being said and it hurts you. 
Yeah. yeah. But you, you know, because the first chance of your technology is not ultimately what you're trying to build. It's that first step. And then sure. you're building a minimal viable product. And then you go and go. And then finally, 10 years later, you, your vision of what you had back then comes to fruition. And that's the product. Right. And, and you have to take all those knocks. Yeah. And, and as yeah. an outsider, people throw the tomatoes at you. People scoff at you. People don't accept what you say. You're not following the norm. You're swimming against the stream. you unnecessary. Why are you? My friends would ask me, why are you doing this? Where do you find the fuel to keep going? The conviction. The conviction. If you're driven by conviction, it's incredible what you're capable of doing. If you're driven by conviction, it's incredible the skill set and humanity that you can draw into your operation that will just work for you for absolutely nothing. There were people in my company that were so highly skilled that had left jobs of such grandeur, but they wanted to be part of a story. Because yeah. as humans, we buy stories, right? I mean, things that, we're not going to talk about cryptocurrencies, etc. but we, what, what they do allude to is the notion of something having value, like that phone or something that someone, a bracelet or, you know, if this water bottle stands here, I'm, you know, in the studio, you've got yeah. this water bottle. I mean, it's probably five bucks because it's a water bottle. But if John Flissmus is drunk it and then he left here and something horrible happened to him and this is the last bottle of water that <laughs> John ever Flissmus drank. ever drank. <laughs> right. Then, then someone may find buy value in that. Buy the story. Someone buy will buy the st- stories. Yeah. are yeah. so powerful. It's so right? powerful. And that's why organizations struggle with this. Like, what's our story? You know, yeah. I meet banks and they want to, like, I keep telling you, you need to have a story. And I think when you have a story, but your story is, can't just be a story. There needs to be an authenticity associated with your story. Mm-hmm. And that authenticity comes from a, a truly organic conviction to do things, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like what Tim O'Reilly says. He says, um, true invention and innovation doesn't exist amongst entrepreneurs or business people. It exists when people are having fun. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's quite cool. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a true, true, true invention. The Wright brothers didn't want to sell planes. They didn't want to com- have a commercial airline business. No. Oaks just wanted to fly. In fact, the guy that said, if God wanted man to fly, it would have given him wings. is their dad. In an, you know, and the town sat around and they came and watched these bicycle makers by day try and fly these things, you know, in the afternoons. Okay. And it was a joke and people like laughed at them. Again, these are people that are not in the crowd. These are people that are driven by just, I want to fly. I look at a bird and I want to do what that is. And yeah. that conviction, it doesn't necessarily have to be this like sad story. It could sure. just be an inspirational, I want to do that. I want, you know, an Elon Musk having an interplanetary vision and conviction. You can look at that. But when an entrepreneur is driven by conviction, it's incredible. I mean, look at him. The amount of money that he burns, but he still climbs up. He still comes back. Look at people that are driven by conviction will do things and are capable of doing things that most people underestimate. I just want to go back to one thing. So you talk about this reflective mirror in society where we see a reflection of ourselves. You obviously have a very positive impact on humanity as an outsider because your conviction is a one that is a good one right if we look at an egg if you crack an egg from the outside it means death if you crack an egg from the inside it means life now what we are seeing in society from the insiders for example is this fact that they're using technology for their own gain and not to serve humanity how does that make you feel Artificial intelligence, this, this thing that we call the fourth industrial revolution. Everyone, like, oh, I've said this before. Everyone's, every time someone says fourth industrial revolution, <laughs> a beautiful baby panda violently gets murdered. I think um, the thing inside of that whole notion is AI. And I think it, it gets clouded out by this 4IR stuff. But if you keep looking at AI, we're already seeing it. I mean, um, so let's just take a big step back to answer that question. This is not new. 
This is absolutely not new. And this is just a different dispensation of what we see. And so, you know, Zuckerberg and what he's doing and, and what Google's doing, the fitness functions that these artificial intelligence engines have are not sound. In fact, they're quite profoundly negative, and we're starting to establish that they are. But we have to go back and understand how important it is that we really... So, so I'm going to give it a further step back. When I speak at universities, so I do quite a few guest lectures, I get up, I talk to the students... I am trying to, you know, the, the deans, the heads of faculty, etc. I'm really trying to push. I was with the, the, the Scientific Association of South Africa with Jonathan Janssen the other day. And what we did is we sat down. And one of the things I said in this room, I said, to, you know what the problem with this room is? Is that there's no one with humanity skills in the room. So you know what Mark Zuckerberg should have? He should have someone that understands Greek mythology. He should have someone that understands paleontology anthropology in the room and i think that diversification of skill sets when you bring those things together i think a better sounder outcome would come to the fore we've seen this before milton friedman in the early 1970s mm. oh yes he gave us a fitness function that screwed us all up right the yeah. sole responsibility of an organization Make is profits. to derive value to its shareholders that's it forget social yeah. no 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 so he what he did was he gave the algorithms of wall street the ais mm. of wall street a fitness function and we still suffer from that fitness function today. And be, an AI injected into that fitness function is accelerating that. So what we see happening, we see productivity levels in the world. I mean, never, we've never seen at this level. We've never seen companies with this productivity level and output. We've never seen this before. Yet we see CEOs being incentivized because of that fitness function on operating margin. And operating margin speaks to doing more with less. And when you are f if your fitness function is doing more with less and it's solely driven by margin, then you have this dystopian outcome that we see happening in the world today. The world is broken not because of AI, it's because of a fitness function that was given to this thing. So we really need to be contemplative. Also, we have results. I mean, I love the Fantasia example of Mickey Mouse. You know, he's got the wizard's hat and he's got the wizard's book and the wand and then he, he's, got, and he's playing around with it and he's got, he's got the superpower. And then he gives the broom a fitness function and he says, go fetch water. And you see the little broom with the buckets, go, 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 go. And he falls asleep and he wakes up and suddenly he's in an ocean of water and a vortex and he's spinning and he's spinning. And, he, and in, in his, in his, he's suddenly grabbing the wizard's book and he's trying to undo the fitness function. And that's, that's a metaphor for Mark Zuckerberg today. That's a metaphor for Google today. These people have extraordinary powers and how they wield those powers as an example, it's a metaphor of what we need to do to fix it. And where we fix it is on the most basic level is we need to ensure that we have the humanities and the algorithmic folks in the same room. We need to cross-pollinate. A we consciousness, to, like a the consciousness, consciousness yeah. officer. You know, if you want to see something that's quite shocking, go see a YouTube video with Yuval Nora, the guy that wrote Sapiens and ODS and 20, the 21 Essence, and, and see the, the, the interview he does with Mark Zuckerberg. If you want to see a man that's driven by humanity and understanding humanity and paleontology and the history of humanity, etc., etc., getting together with this engineer from Harvard, <laughs> noticed, notice the, the gap in the understanding. Notice how Mark completely does not get him. And he's speaking to him. And he talks to him about Roman times and Greek times. And Mark just cannot translate that into... He's not getting AI it. He's, yeah, he's not saying, like, you understand that this tool that you've built could have a dystopian outcome. I love that someone said, uh, the, you know, AI is our superpower. It's, uh, artificial yeah. intelligence is a superpower, but it's kryptonite is inequality, you know, and, and that's, that's so true. And we're seeing it happening more and more and more. And I think, so, so what we need to do, I absolutely concur with you. I think this, 
the, the concentration of power that we see in the world because of organizations that have wielded this artificial intelligence in ways and means that we couldn't have imagined in such a short period of time. I mean, give you an example, the top five companies in the world, Alphabet, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, but the five, the top five, they're all technology companies. Combined net asset value with concentration of wealth and attention, they outstrip every other company listed on the S&P 500. They outstrip them all. And that's a very scary thing. We've never seen such a concentration of wealth. Now, think, think of it. Jeff, the fact that Jeff Bezos has a hundred and something billion bucks, it's dystopian. It's not right. It's not the way things should be. It's uh, the only way you participate in the value of Amazon is if you buy shares. And, and you know, if you take a look at what the workers have to go through, if you take a look at... But I do think Amazon's probably that one business in the world right now that is a, is a metaphor for potentially how we could think about the world differently. We need to... And, and this is one of the talks that I do a lot right now is this notion of reimagination. What the world needs to do today is to reimagine. We need to reimagine our society. I, I love... You know, in, go back to history. You know, we had George Washington, um, you know, as the president of the United States, and then we had King George in England, and they were fighting, right? And um, King George said something quite profound. I read this. He said, if George Washington truly goes back to his farm after his presidential term and goes back to being a farmer, he'll be the greatest man that's ever lived. Mm. George Was- King George couldn't reimagine a society where freedoms and rule of law and, and those things, he could only imagine a monarchy. And, and, and I think what society needs to do right now is we, we, we may not have monarchies, but that is definitely a metaphor for what we're doing today. I think I love the saying, we believe in the divine right of capital, just like we believed in the divine right of kings at one point of time. Somehow, we don't have any power as individuals, consumers. I mean, like, look at surveillance capitalism. Look at all of these things that are happening. Um, things are doing, being done without our consent. There's no transparency. But as an insider, where's your consciousness? How can this be okay for the future generation? Yeah. So, so for, as an outsider, when I look at it, you know, in my independent, from my independent perspective, I'll take you back again. I, I, when I lived in the States, um, I lived in the States for about seven years. I worked for Eric Schmidt at Novell. And one of the privileges that I had before he went to Google is the following. I missed my flight in Michigan because the airport was snowed in. I called Eric's PA and I said, hotels are booked up. I can't get, what do I do? And she said, don't worry, Eric's driver will pick you up. You can go stay at his house. Driver picked me up, went to his house. Big cars, long driveway. I was shocked. I mean, it was just, the house was just massive. It was so impressive. And I was this little junior engineer. Trust me, I was a nobody. Just a little junior person. And um, I walked up and... Um, I saw all these limos, etc. The door opened up and there was all these famous people. Bono was in his house and Al Gore was there. And I didn't know what was going on. And what I picked up that he was doing a fundraiser for Al Gore at his house when fun- Gore was running against Bush. Right. And uh, I walked in and Eric said to me, hey, come over here, Stafford. Sit at our table. And when I went into this foyer and they took my bags and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. There was just so many, uh, the amount of famous people and Michael Jackson was there. You know, there were so many famous people in this room and I was like, oh, and I sat down at the table and at our table, when we find everyone got seated, long story short, everyone got sat down. At our table was Lo Gerstner from IBM, Larry Ellison from Oracle, Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems. And then, you know, who was one away from Eric was Steve Jobs at the table. And I sat there and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is yeah. amazing. And you know what Eric did? He asked to the CEOs, where do you see the world going? 
And Scott McNeely spoke about Java at the time. Java, Java, Java beans. And I was like, Java, Java. And I was this engineer and I was taking all this in. I was like, this is the greatest privilege that I'm going to tell everyone about. <laughs> and I was so impressed by Scott McNeely's acumen and like what he was saying. And da, 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 da. and then it got to Lo Gerstner. And Lo Gerstner spoke about the IBM stuff. The HP guy spoke about the HP stuff. And I was blown away. Uh, Larry Ellison spoke about cloud computing before anyone else spoke about cloud computing. He spoke about the network is the computer. And no one understood it at that time. And it was amazing. And I watched this, watched this. And then long story short, Steve Jobs didn't say much, didn't say anything. And I was more impressed by him because of, you know, the, the turtleneck that's black and the jeans. And uh, on and on it went, and he didn't say anything. And then Eric turned to him and said, Steve, you haven't said anything. Where do you see the world going? And you know what he did? Everyone looked at, looked at him, and he looked up, and he sat back, and he said, I believe people are inherently good, not inherently evil. And you know what? I sat there, and I, I was like, this, what, a, what a downer. Like this, like this guy's supposed to be like, <laughs> this dumb. It's like no wonder Apple like knocked him out the first time around. Yeah, no get wonder him he can't get over Microsoft because he sucks and blah, blah, blah. And then, like I were left and I was quite disappointed that this person that I thought so much of would say that. Like people are inherently good, not inherently evil. And I was like, what? Like why? Why is he so dumb? And then you know what? Not too long from there, like a year later, he launched iTunes, and he went to record label companies, and he went around saying your business model is prefaced on the basis that humans are bad so but piracy actually exists not because people are bad it's just lack of access and fairly priced mm. if you can fairly price a track and you can make it accessible universally in an easy way with a set of tool sets you know you won't have this and he launched itunes and sold a third of all music in the world and it still does today on the and you know the basis of itunes wasn't the fact that it was a great technological tool it was a leader that understood humans more than he understood technology he actually understood that people are inherently good, not in, and I, I subscribe to that. I think humanity is, is where it is today because there's 49% of us that, is, that are absolutely lethal, <laughs> that will destroy uh, the planet. Man. That would love to, love to see. <laughs> that would love to see. What does that? What does what does the guy say to Batman? Some people just want to see the world burn. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, the 49% of us are like that, and then there's the 51% that's not. And I think that delta, that one to two percent, is what drives us forward generation after generation so so yes um we do live in a world right now where it is dystopian in many ways and it could have a dystopian outcome but i i think people are inherently good not inherently evil and i think that's what will move us forward but we do need leadership that needs to understand humanity more they do we do we need we we need to tell leaders that you don't have to do more with less you can do more of what was previously impossible because of these technological tools, you don't have to, you know, the, 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 the most accentuated derivative of artificial intelligence is the inclusion of the human. When a human is augmented by these disparate tool sets, the, the resultant, you know, the best radiologist is not Watson disseminating radiological information. It's a radiologist combined with Watson. The best chess player is not... A centaur. It's, yeah, a centaur. That's a combination of an AI with a grandmaster. And those centaur leagues are the greatest derivatives of a chess player. This is not, this is human-machine symbiosis. This is a good thing. This is a beautiful thing. This is the greatest gift that we've ever been given. This is fire again. This is the wheel again. And if we look at it in this dystopian way, it's okay to look at that. And I think, do think fire probably, we probably burnt a lot of people with it, witches, and we, we took our cultural beliefs <laughs> and we, we poked each other with it and we branded each other and we did bad things with fire. But ultimately, it allowed us to, like, uh, I love what Yuval Norris says, you know, we externalized our stomachs. 
You know, when we, inv- when we discovered a fire, we could partially digest items external to our bodies for the first time. And because of that, we could suddenly combine so many disparate nutrients into our diet and that affected our DNA. And that's why we progressed so well. And that's why we could move too. And climate didn't dictate our proximity, our location. And that was an amazing thing. And I think what we're doing now, just like we externalize our stomachs with this tool called fire, I think we're externalizing ourselves. I think we're externalizing our souls, our minds. Uh, and then the first iteration of selfies and what I'm eating and you know how <laughs> I feel about common, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, we're we rendering all of this information into the ether and we're creating these deep, rich information shadows. But the, I think the resultant will be a positive. I think you will get healthcare in a way that, you know, that was unbelievable before. Just like you could get an Uber car. I mean, if I ever told you five to ten years ago that you'll be able to open up an app and you get a car no matter where you are in three to five minutes, you're going, impossible. Because in your skeuomorphic way, you'd look at the world and think about a cab company with an app. And then Uber came along and just rebooted. I think healthcare will be rebooted in that same way. I think healthcare won't be a doctor with 20 years experience in studying and he'll be the best practitioner. It won't be. Healthcare will be a nurse augmented by disparate species of healthcare-based AIs that will deliver healthcare in a way that was previously unimaginable at the swipe of a button. And you won't have 200 doctors, you'll have you know, 200 derivatives of skill sets that are augmented in this way that just reboots healthcare. Um, your healthcare won't be, I mean, 1% of the world, you know, here's the World Economic Forum stat around healthcare. Um, it's 199. 1% of healthcare, insurance spend, etc. in the entire world is 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 diagnosis. Ninety nine percent of it in the world is treatment. It's gonna change ninety nine one. It's gonna be ninety nine percent diagnosis, but self diagnosis. It will be and one percent treatment. And it'll be ex- it, like so such a direct sniper based treatment because it'll be so data driven that you'll live longer. And and to be honest, the world's a better place. You don't want to rewind 50 years to 100. You don't ever want to live in a world with no, no penicillin, no antibiotics. You, you know, let me take you back. I have a slide in one of my, of my presentations <laughs> where I actually show how labor work looked like in the year 1900. It was like the shittest place. Like horrifying. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not talking about like black slavery people. Like, for, like I, I love what someone said. Like a black man never wants a time machine. <laughs> yeah, ever, 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 ever. Only forward, never backwards. Go forward as yeah, yeah, quickly yeah, as you yeah. can. Even now, yeah, go even forward now, from yeah. now. But like we can never go back anywhere because it's like just more fucked up before you go back. Yeah. But the, the point is that like if if you take a look at the year 1900 and you take a look at labor, I did a snapshot of what labor looked at. The term child labor only came to be, I think it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, it was just labor beforehand. Just labor. It was you were six, seven years old. You went and worked in the field. Yeah. You went and cleaned the chimney. Kids had, the, kids had a particular function because skill of their set size no, what size not yeah. even skill get the fact in the chimney you, you, yeah or get underground mining companies right. used to use them you know the, the way we made clothes and it, it was horrible being a six seven year old in the year 1900 you worked uh, you know shifts that were inhumane absolutely so, inhumane you know can we talk about that for a sec because it really interests me there's this talk of democratization and, and yet this concentration of power it's like a simultaneous story is there a difference between the conditions you just described and these online dreamy, you know, companies, where are they manufacturing? I mean, we all know that our iPhones are made in places where human rights are not really that big a deal. But how do you know that? 
because mm. of your iPhone. Yeah, because my iPhone told yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and because someone in China that's 12 years old sticking yeah. little soldering wires onto iPhone sure. motherboards is yeah. taking a selfie doing that. So I guess what I'm asking is how do we deal with that asymmetry? In other words, we want to be interested in humanity. We've understood that a lot of the humanitarian things are done by people who are outside the group. But equally, so are the things that manipulate large groups of humans, i.e. the market. How do we deal with the asymmetry of, I'm still obsessed with your idea of electricity going into the walls. It's almost like the new technology aspects of humanity has gone into the walls as well. So as an outsider, when I look at what's going on, just and and you know my computer science background, yeah. developer, you know, it, you start learning that technology has leanings. It's got it's got attributes. It's got behavior, uh, and it's not it's not mystical. If you truly understand it at its most elemental level, it's it's just like electricity. It's ones and zeros. It's pulses of of electrons. It's not it's not a complicated thing. So so. I love what Kevin Kelly says. He says, when the raindrop falls in the valley, you can't tell where it's going to land up, but we know the trend is downward. Like we can't predict, we could have predicted the telephone, but we couldn't have predicted the iPhone. We could have right. predicted. So, so, so it does have leanings and meanings. And when I look at that and I look at it broadly and I look at humanity, I, and I go back to the year 1900 and I kind of look where we're trending towards. Yes, mm-hmm. do we have kids in Cambodia doing things that they shouldn't and it's kind of derivatives of child labor. Do, in China, people working hours where they're committing suicide because, yes, 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 but those things are getting exposed. But broadly speaking, mm-hmm. broadly on an 80,000 foot view of humanity, we're working less because we can be more productive. I think, I think the challenge that we're going to have as humans is what are we going to do with our spare time? When we put the machines into agriculture we freed ourselves up from jobs that we were fighting for at the time you know to till mm. the soil was yep. uh, there was an identity and a legacy associated with that and that's where we found ourselves and then the machines came along and automated all of that and what we did was we said okay if the machines are going to do that we're going to put our kids into schools and you know governments didn't make schools the first school that ever existed was the year 1909 in iowa when a bunch of farmers got together and decided they're going to give their kids uh, education it wasn't even called education just higher skills and they got people to educate the kids because they noticed urbanization happening and they taxed themselves and that's how the high school movement started in the united states with a bunch of farmers that circled the wagons and said we're going to build a school and that was quite incredible and and when that happened we freed ourselves up when the machines took over the hard labor the, the this we 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 weren't chasing calories anymore what we were focusing on is building michelin chef expertise and recipes yeah as soon as you inject these tools into making the things from an efficiency and productivity perspective. If you can measure the efficiency and productivity, the machines will take that over. And and to be honest with you, I think it should take it over. Yeah. So we have less of what you're describing. Human machines should be doing the tilling of the soil uh, from a from a pure metaphoric basis. Today, we yeah. shouldn't have human beings doing that work. Human beings need to be free to do what they love because when human beings are free to do what they love, they incur more work. They, then the resultant is a deeper economic impact. You know, we put the ATM into banking. We took the people away from sitting behind a static chair and a thick glass pane with a hole in it and shoving paper through sure. mm. to giving them a, a computer with information and augmenting them to d- deliver financial instruments and services that were yeah. previously unimaginable. And the machine did that, the ATM did that. Whenever you inject technology into things on an aggregate basis, it frees humanity up. That's why we went from seven, working seven days a week to working Monday to Friday. So we could not only drive our cars, and but we didn't. And I think the notion of a four-day work week is very, very real. When I worked at Google, we had the 80-20 rule. 
And I think that is definitely something that people should research more. 80-20 meant 80% of the time you did what Google wanted you to do, KPIs. But 20% of the time, you did whatever the hell you wanted. And Google, it subsidized it. I did my helicopter license through Google. I got my dive master license through Google. Because on that Friday, I'd go and do what I wanted. But yeah. you know what happened? They they only subsidize it if you got your dive master qualification, provided that the result of that was that you would uplift previously disadvantaged people to also become right, that. right, right. So you pay See, it wasn't wow. just about your skill set; it was also about sharing. If you could prove what that, you can do with it, yeah. Then you could have. Now, I think organizations and companies need to start looking at things like this. They need to start employing models like this. I don't like like one of the things that Sim did at Standard Bank, which you know I spoke to him about the other day. I don't like it. He closed all the bank branches, and he was the head of the head the unions, etc. And I think, I, I, I think leaders need to. Think about doing, not more or less, but doing things that were previously impossible. Because it is yeah. possible today. Yeah. You know, Amazon is a representation of this. Amazon, if I took a picture of a person in a warehouse 10 years ago working for Amazon, it was someone with a girdle and wrist protectors mm. and there was a big plaque on the wall saying X amount of injuries not happened in X amount of days. Uh, today, you fast forward, you see AIs on the floor and robotics and you see human beings as conductors with glowing rectangles orchestrating these things and they're getting more out of a square meterage of warehouse space than was previously imaginable but yeah. he's not laying those people off he's making those people deliver services that were previously sure. imagined. you go to new york now like i did not too long ago you order uh, you forget your apple uh, charger you order it as a prime member it gets your hotel door in 32 minutes that was previously unimaginable from clicking on a website to the product sure. bringing it all and i think that's what we can do and that's what society needs to do and that's what we need to drive forward as leaders is think less of doing more with less and think about doing things in an ecosystem way in a way where you're deriving things and possibilities that were previously unimaginable and i think that's so so the person soldering out there that's 12 years old that shouldn't be doing that um, i think that's just that's again you're looking in in this epoch you're looking at sure. where we are right now, but in aggregate, that's not the flow of where things are going. It's about the redeployment of that surplus yeah. on and a more human yeah. level. Yeah. And human beings augmented with these tools are incredibly useful and they can yeah. do things that were previously unimaginable. And I think that's the 80-20 rule again in Google. 20% time resulted in Gmail. 20% time resulted in quite a few search functions because... When you let people free to do things, I was involved, just a quick story, I was involved in a project in Seattle, an automation project, and we created this little robot and a, a pick and place machine, and we put it on the floor, and we didn't inform the workers, and uh, we came back a week later, our machine was broken, and uh, we looked at the CCTV footage, and we found this Mexican guy with a baseball bat came to work, toy toying, <laughs> nailing this, this little the machine. <laughs> And then throwing it into the corner, and everyone going, shh, 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 shh. and he was the hero, right? We sat down with that guy. And we said, why did you do that? And he said, well, it's, it's going to take my job. And we said, okay. And we spoke to him a little bit more and a little bit more. And what we discovered was he actually hated his job. What he loved was playing a particular Spanish instrument. And he taught math over weekends. Because he's kind of really good at math to the Spanish community. You see, there is so much unlocked human mm -hmm. potential. There's so yeah. much latent human capital on the planet. Mm. Um, what we see now is not what it should be. We're actually living in the derivative of 1900. The future is, could be a, a fantastic future sure. if we liberate humanity yeah. and, and, and stop people from doing the jobs that they're fighting for right now. And we find identity in, in our creativity, in our, in our artisanal aspects of what we are as humans, because that's where we're really, really good. And that's where AI will never get to, because that's yeah. not what AI does. And so, yeah, so that's what I think.
Okay, and I'll yeah. put it to you that you say that as a human who perhaps was um, robbed early on of yeah. some humanity and therefore have reflected more deeply on, yeah. on what that means as you apply the lens of technology. Absolutely. I mean, I think the defense rests. He is an outsider. It's so good when you can see the benefit of, let's call it a negative driver. Yeah. Because perhaps it's a traumatic beginning. It's a sense of loss. It's a sense of lack. Yes. It's a constraint. Mm. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's a very utilitarian way of describing it. But, um, but what, what has developed is Stafford Massey, who's now this kind of technological leader with a serious human um, mm. aspect. And, and so that's my exact thing is I think people who are too middleized, right. they're in the herd. We almost lose our humanity mm. because it's too, um, it's too sort of um, ambient. That's right. It's by remembering the loss or feeling mm. the pain of being an outsider. That's where great art comes from. But you yeah. know what? It does take someone to stand outside the tuna ball to see how beautiful it is. It does take someone to stand, to look up in the sky and look at the starlings. It does take someone to take a step back away from a termite mound and look at it. But you, if you took any bird out of there, not one individual, one of those birds has the competence or the acumen to do and move in that particular way. 100%. There is a beauty in us being together. There is a beauty in us being orchestrated in this invisible societal way where we can develop shapes and forms and functions to survive to create climates that are different etc etc and i i but it, it takes someone to stand on the outside to reflect on who we are as humans and it's a very positive story it's a beautiful what's happening in the world today is so positive it is so beautiful um our brains are trained to take a look at the negative it's a survival thing right mm. that that front portion of your brain that says hey watch out and you know hot year cold day animal day that still drives us that's why we, we pick up the newspapers by look click on the links that shows us the big fat scary headline but in aggregate human machine symbiosis is a beautiful thing it's a thing that will free us up to truly do what we love versus having to fight for the things that we find our identities in today and where i grew up in el dorado park I mean, you take a look at how many people are there. If you take a look at the latent human potential that exists where I grew up, I am not unique. I'm not the smartest color guy from El Dorado Park. There's so much latent human potential there. And I think it exists because of badly programmed algorithms. I think El Dorado yeah. Park should be a, a beautiful place where people make beautiful things and be beautiful beings. And, and unfortunately, economically speaking right now, we are subject to a rogue AI already right now. And I think as an outsider looking in, I see an unlocking of latent human potential over the next couple of decades that's going to be profound. And I think it will be an amazing time to be alive. I want to know, when was the last time you failed? I, I learned a couple of things when I was at Google, actually, about failure. No, let me... Yeah. Professionally speaking, I learned a lot at Google about failure. That, but they, you know, I loved when they used to say, they said that before anyone else did, and it was in the company that, you know, failure is embraced, but, but failure is crap. Like, just be fear, fear failure. But failure that's valuable is failure that's identified early and done quickly. Like, then failure is beautiful. Like, the people don't tell you that. The people like embrace failure, embrace failure. As an entrepreneur, no, failure is like really <laughs> shit. I don't yeah, ever want to fail. It hurts. It costs money. It's not nice. But, you know what, uh, the, the, the skill set of identifying failure soon and then you know, doing it rapidly is when failure truly becomes this thing that is a data gathering 
you know, exercise where you actually find out, okay, so that's what it is. And now we know we move forward and it becomes this in your catalog, in your, in your, your, your it gives you corporate wisdom. I think there's lots of value of that. I, I fail all the time. My kids think I'm the biggest idiot in the world. That's a standard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> wife, my wife still doesn't understand why people pay me to go on stage. Like, why, why would they pay you to go on stage? So, but that's not, so no, but, but just, I, I think in my life, I've learned, you know, you can truly, and I'm not saying this in, in a, just a blasé way, like everyone says it, but, you know, the conditions that I grew up in, um, you were either subject to the failure around you and you just collapsed into it, or you're not. And one of the things that my dad managed to do was to get me to Israel. So I lived in Israel for three and a half years. Um, and, you know, when I left El Dorado Park and I got, for the first time on a plane and I flew to Israel and I landed there, and there's a long story of why that happened, but I landed there. Um, I had no family there. I had to make a living there. Um, and, and just what it did, it gave me, I met so many people that weren't like me. I met, I mean, I dated a Brazilian girl and then I met this guy from France and Australia and then all these Israelis that were just amazing people and the hardships that they undergo and how they, the tenacity. And, and you know, when I went back to El Dorado Park, I just wasn't subject to the social challenges that they have. I just didn't want to steal car radios. Mm. I didn't want to rob people. And and that was where you went. And and the guy that wore the beautiful clothes and drove the white wall mags and and uh, that just didn't entice me anymore. And the only difference between me and the person that is being enticed today in Eldorado Park with that is because I got exposed. I had the opportunity to see that the world's a really big place mm-hmm. and that the world has beautiful people inside of it with disparate, you know, minds and, and opinions and, and you know, uh, you go to like New York, the beauty of New York and Paris and these things are that there's so much diversity. That's, uh, someone termed it, it's a human coral reef. And it's all <laughs> the colors good. and fishes and species and, and it's, it's just so dynamic. It's a beautiful thing to see. And when you're on the, in the Eldorado Park, when you're in the herd, when you're stuck in there and you only see those four walls, that's why people are the way they are. And I think technology does promise the opportunity for them to see the world is bigger. And as technology progresses and things become cheaper, it's not the affluent or the, the lucky that get to go. It's, it's actually really, really possible now. Low-cost airlines and etc. Technology is advancing it to a point where there are now opportunities. And hopefully there's many more like me over there. And, and so, yeah, so failure. Yeah, failure is not, failure is not a nice thing. I, uh, I learned to, to fail hard in my life. Um, I've, I've failed very badly in my life. In my startups... Uh, people talk about the few successes that I've had. Yes, luckily my successes outstripped my failures, luckily. But I've had catastrophic successes. The first, I mean, Thumbs Up was a complete failure the first three, four years. Complete failure. People thought I was crazy. I burned through money. Um, you know, my family thought I was nuts. I, was, I lost friends because, of, because I couldn't see them anymore. This journey of entrepreneurship is a very lonely journey. It's not a, it's not a journey that... Yeah. entrepreneurship should not be desired. <laughs> yeah. I, I go to university and I feel like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur. It's like, you know what? Not everyone's an entrepreneur, but everyone should try it once. And then quickly understand that you're not. And then find an entrepreneur and then sit in that slipstream. And you don't have to deal with all that other stuff, but you can have all the benefits of it. And I think that's the majority of humans. And I think that's okay. But entrepreneurship is a combinatorial derivative <laughs> of failure. It really, really is. It's yeah. like all, like it's, it's, a, it's just a, and, and you know what, when someone looks back at thumbs up and they say, they look at the success and adoption, I go, yeah, okay. But like, I, if someone had to say, would you do it again? I don't know. 
I don't know because of the amount of failure and how it hurts you. And I tell you now, it hurts you in in a you know in a your marriage gets hurt by it. You know, you lose many years not seeing your children by it. You lose friendships. You, it impacts your family. It impacts your health. These are things that people don't talk about a lot. But like, it's it's hard being the outsider. You know, being in part of the crowd is easy. It's really nice. It's comforting. There's warmth being together and herding, and that's why sheep do it and cows do because it, it's safe. Yeah, it's, it's average. Yeah, it's, it's sure, but it's the safe. aggregate is safety. It's safety, yeah. But yeah. I mean, but standing in the cold by yourself, yeah. screaming into the wind. It's uh, it's the it's the lonely path. It's the hard path. And there's a there's very few people that actually sit down. And I do this, by the way. I get founders now, and I get together with them, and we talk about this. And I actually have a psychologist, therapist person in the room, and we talk about the hurt that we've gone through because our success changes us, us into potentially being extremely narcissistic. The derivative of a successful entrepreneur is generally an extreme narcissist. What do you think? Steve was, Steve Jobs. What do you think Mark Zuckerberg is? It's extreme narcissism, right? And that's because, you know, all the failure bound up and then finally the success gives you this like, this, this high and, it, and, it, and if you don't control that in the success, you, you know, it really breaks you as much as the failures break you. And that's a part of what I do that's unspoken, that's not spoken of enough and which I am peeling to understand more as I try to understand myself more is understanding what... The type of father I am to my kids, I think, has improved over the last five years because I've actually embraced the notion of psychology and what my upbringing. So being hard and flying to Israel and being alone and dealing with those those hardships and then coming back and being this tenacious, nothing can break me because nothing can make me as poor as that. And you can overcome everything. That's, that's the one side of that coin. The other side to that coin is you hurt people because not everyone's like you. And like you, you become less tolerant. I mean, my kids, the, uh, I am sorry for my two eldest. I got three, but my 19-year-old and my 16-year-old, what I put them through, the barriers, the, the hurdles that I put in front of them, not the hurdles, the expectations that I lay down on them, and sometimes the way I speak to them because I think they're just privileged. And, they just, and, and, and so it can translate into a, a, a very negative derivative. And that's, we almost got to like just understand that and really look at that carefully and and. And, and many leaders, many entrepreneurs, many founders that have been successful and failures have had to deal with this. And there's very few people that speak about this. And I'm trying to peel that a little bit more. And this is, again, going deep into the humanities aspect yeah. of success and failure. It's, um, it leaves you with scars, emotional scars, uh, psychological scars. And you, it plays out in your marriage. You become this really shitty guy. You, know, you, you become a dad that's never there. You're there, but you're never there. And when you're there, you become very, you run your, your house like a business. And, you, you know, it's, everything is like on time and then it's a meeting. It's like, the, and it's, it's not life. It's not how life's supposed to be. And then you quickly see how unbalanced you are. And I've had to deal with that. So from, so that's, I'm sharing something extremely personal, but that's mm. what I've had to do. Is really, as an outsider, realize that, yes, it's been successful monetarily. I, I can't fault. Fine. But the price I've paid is really having to deal with me and having to deal with, am I the right person? To, am I a pleasant person to actually lay next to at night? Am I a pleasant person to socially have around? You know, when you're an attention deficit person and you can't sit still, it's hard to be at a birthday party because you're wasting time. You become this dad that's so hard on your daughters and then you develop these kids that, you know, you've got to be careful. 
that they go pick men that are so not like you. The influence that you have as a father, as a man, and I'm speaking as a man because I, you know, as, 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 you've got to be very careful how your successes don't destroy you in, in those roles and, and those functions. And I've had to really internalize a lot and really undo many things that formulated a part of who I was. For, and, and, and I would say my successes were profound. Right, so I'm probably one of the most successful technological innovators in South Africa, like Shuttleworth and some of the. I I'm in that. Okay, cool, it's great, but you know how much work I've had to do over probably the last four to five years to find myself again, the true self, and that's uh, and luckily my wife is someone that's been able to do that. She's she's seen that and helped me along to peel and unpeel and look at those scars and admit and and I've become a better man. So it's always a journey. You're not at your end, but I'm a lot better than I was four or five years ago. And I think my kids would say the same thing now. And that's yeah, that comes from failing a lot and going through very, very difficult situations as, as a child. And, and when the country was a very difficult place to be in, it was a person of my color, uh, landing up in a country that I didn't know. And uh, you know, we talk about these things in a very glamorized way, but people don't fully comprehend how we've had to deal with this. And I think that's every colored guy out there is challenged with this. Every black guy out there doesn't speak about this. We speak about the, you know, the struggle and we talk about this in a very bombastic, positive way. But to be honest, as an outsider, when I look in, we are, there are lots of, and I'll talk for men, there are lots of men in South Africa that haven't truly dealt, that haven't had their own truth and reconciliation. And I think on an individual basis, that's definitely needed because I see too much of it. I see too many hurt women, females, children, families because of men that haven't dealt with this shit. And, 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 and uh, I had to wake up four or five years ago and really look in the mirror and say, hey, you're not, you're not a great guy. You know, you're that person that all the reporters talk about, that person on stage when you go to Sun City and there's 2,000 people. We've seen that, John. It's a great high, right? When you leave that stage, you've got to realize that, you know, that's not actually you. It's not real, yeah. It's not real. It's sure. real, sure, it's great, and it's monetarily great, but at the end of the day, you know, you go back, your kids, yeah. they, want to, they don't care about the guy on the stage. Yeah, and that's, well, um, that's, I think, sometimes we can't translate that. Yeah, well, I think that's what I mean by not real. It's it's a moment in, in an artificial time. It's real for certain. Sure, it, it happens, um, and there's a reward. But it, it, it occurs in a place you can't take your children. Yeah, It occurs in a place you can't take your partner. Mm. And that kind of makes you impossible to be around sometimes when, when you start to believe that world. Yeah. That's why I don't stop doing comedy. It's exactly that. And the other thing which has struck me is that you know, one of the great asymmetries in this country is that white people see themselves as outsiders, and yet there was a determined strategy to make the majority the outsiders right. for so long. Mm -hmm. There are so many outsiders walking around, and so many, um, you know, falsely um, uh, positioned insiders. Yeah. Being an involuntary outsider. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now to suddenly cry that they're the outsider. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is the whole system is completely misdescribed and, and, and misperceived. Yeah. When we give you music that is clinical and beautiful and high definition, because technology allows me to do that, you know what it does? It makes you long for the snap, crackle, and pop of a needle on a piece of vinyl, right? So just to lift the needle and put it on the vinyl and see it spin you know, and to see the VHS cassette deck go into the machine. You remember that sound, that yeah. Yeah. the way it went in and you knew it was in there. The, we, we long for that. And I think technology takes us back to our humanity. Technology actually unveils things about us that is invisible and not really... I spoke to a developmental psychologist on radio a couple of years ago. 
And she says, you know what technology has done? It's actually made us understand how important it is to forget. Because technology never forgets. We're creating these, these social media things. That Everlasting they, echoes. You know, that's perpetual memories. And I love what she said. A perpetual memory is a paralysis to society. That we're now starting to understand as developmental psychologists that we actually need to have the ability to forget. How do we move on? Forgetfulness is interlocked with forgiveness, which is interlocked with empathy. Wow. These things are yeah. so inexplicably like tightly and, and if you can't be forgotten. So if John Flissmus is snorting cocaine and it's a sixteen year old at a party on a toilet seat and that gets absorbed into the ether today, you will lose a presidential campaign in the future because of that event. Absolutely. And that's unfair. Absolutely. That's unfair. That's not right. Yeah. You know, we go through our stages, we learn who we are every decade as a completely different human being from the previous decade. But technology keeps presenting what you were before at you, at yeah, you, at right. you. And forgetfulness is an, as a substrate of what makes us human. And if we cannot forget, we cannot forgive. And if we cannot forgive, we don't have empathy. That's a very dangerous thing. So, so again, as much as it you makes us yearn for the beautiful snap, crackle, and pop of the vinyl, uh, it is also presenting this other notion that forgiveness and you know empathy is this underlying thing of forgetfulness. We never really valued that before. Yeah, now we're suddenly realizing, whoa, be, being able to forget is yeah. important. And the right to forget is the thing. And now in the, the EU has an, enforced that. The right oh, really? to forget. Yeah, right you, to can, forget. you can contact Google in any one of the European countries and they're under legislation. If there's search must results, you, they must remove it. The right to be forgotten is a oh. legislative law in the, you know, in, in the EU. And I think, you know, this is, this is these things that we need to be challenged with. And it's, un, it's unraveling us. It's fleshing us inside out. And it's making us look at ourselves. In, in ways that we've never been able to look at ourselves before. And I think that's a privilege. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and we're picking up things about ourselves that, we, that were unspoken, unheard, not identified before. And again, it's the outsiders that are looking at it from that perspective. Like a full circle. Full circle. Very I good. feel like We I... have to thank this guy. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's always so, so awesome to be with you, Carmen, <laughs> and you, John. Thank you. From my side, I didn't say you brought it here to my eye, and I wish it was warm in like you. Did you really cry? Did no, you cry? I had it. No. Seriously. Come on, man. I saw I that, mean, and then I like branched into like. Yeah. I wasn't even watching. You should, I didn't even notice when women. <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't even know so you were not, you, know that, you know that narcissistic thing? Oh. Yeah, we gotta, yeah. Someone needs here. work here. I mean, <laughs> how could I possibly be a narcissist? Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye. The Disruptive Diaries. John and Carmen challenge each other and the listener by providing a life-based challenge that involves disrupting previous behavior and learning new things. Neuroscientific research, that's brain research, has shown that not only does doing new things open new neural pathways, but also that it contributes to the long-term happiness of human beings. There are some rules to this diary, however. No is not an option. Number two, you have to give whatever the challenge is a good go no slacking off and number three you can always ask for help from the person who set the challenge number four if the challenge is impossible for you as long as you're honest about the outcome failing is absolutely fine no judgments here Carmen mm -hmm. that was such a good point with Stafford when you asked him what he what did you say about failure? What have we you lost if you fail? That's a very, very, that's a brilliant thing because, because we don't celebrate failure enough. And, and I love that. I think we should ask each other that every week. Say, what did you really fail at this week? 
I did love you, did it you too. Have, did you have something? Trying to right. adapt my diet and ain't working. Is it not? Mm-mm. What makes it hard for you? So I had a lap band surgery. Okay. Okay, so I can only eat small portions of food. Okay. Which impacts my nutritional levels. Right. But the thing is, is like, I can't eat red meat and I'm just not, I'm not sure what to eat, to be honest. Have you tried plant-based food? Oh, God. I know, I know, but, but just hang on, just hold it. Now, don't take it from me, sort of, you know, like skinny, weedy, tattooed, vegan, you know, scary like person. Like processed type of stuff. So there's a lot of new research <laughs> about eating plant-based food. And I'm not suggesting you have to go and find all exotic, you know, vegan restaurants, and but just whole... I am challenging you. I am saying, I, John, am challenging you, and you know we have a rule, okay? <laughs> if a challenge comes up, you can't say no. But John is expensive. I'm for a week. It's not, it's not expensive. Everything with you is expensive. No, it's not expensive. I promise you. You don't have to go and buy the fancy burgers. Don't get that. Just get vegetables. Just get vegetables, okay? Don't eat or drink any dairy, and you can't have honey because that's also an animal product. I can't have honey? No. Can I have a candorel? Candorel, you can. I don't know why, though, but you can. If you need it. Oh, but hang on. Maple syrup. That's fine. You can have maple syrup. You can have stevia. You can have agave nectar. There's some scientific evidence that plant-based food can help certain health conditions. Try it for a week. If you feel better, carry on. If you don't, leave it. And if you're struggling, you can phone me. Okay. okay. If you fail, I understand. But don't just, like, give up. Don't just, like, have your first speed hump and then hit the biltong. Like, let's rather phone me and we'll talk it through. Um. Are okay, you I'm, I'm in. Challenge accepted. I'm in. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios. You've been listening to the Carmen Murray Show, another Solid Gold Podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Ouya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C, and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.